Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So here we are, another day. A uh, couple, a couple things to run by here. Um, I wanted to to get your your kind of thoughts. This came out of a, a semi recent conversation I had. Um, it was about Charles Charles Taylor's book, as we have talked about several times. But it's called A Secular Age. Very dense read, but um, but but a good read. And and at the end of that book. Taylor really emphasizes kind of his his one of the elements of his path forward is is humility, a humble approach um, is how I put it in in almost the the being being mindful of what we don't know about our faith. Um, and I resonated with this because it it aligns a lot uh, for me with what you've talked about and um, in the cloud of unknowing. And I've really enjoyed kind of stumbling my way through. The cloud of unknowing because of the the deep humility involved in you know man i there's there is a lot that i believe uh, about my faith but there are some things that i believe that uh that i i must hold hold humbly and uh and, j- and just that contrasts a lot with a lot of the knock against evangelicals today which is a very arrogant um bold you know what i believe is correct what you believe is incorrect kind of kind of stereotype um but there's a lot of truth to that stereotype um particularly from from evangelicals i've been myself or or i've met um uh, and and so the conversation drifted into this well what is what is when does that go too far um like let's take some of the the more controversial figures in the Christian circles, like the Rob Bells, um, where you have a, a much looser foundation or, or a lack thereof. Um, you know, it's kind of like gel on the wall, uh, where it's there's just nothing it's it's really holding to. And um, and so my question to you then is, as as we just kind of work our way through, particularly the cloud of unknowing, um, what what's your take on that? Where is the the too far? How do we not go too far? And and like how do we align or hold to foundational truths? And what are some of those truths? Well, Katie, you always ask such dense questions. Uh, early like in the ten and one, ten and one there for you. You know, Man, give you like a, it's like a quadruple shot espresso <laughs> here. <laughs> Um, tell me uh, first of all. Tell tell listeners what do we uh, what was understood by this what cloud of unknowing? What what in heaven's name is that? Oh, is this like quiz time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna throw out these dense phrases. You're gonna have to back them up, buddy boy. <laughs> well, what I've taken from the cloud of unknowing is uh, we are we are finite beings attempting to understand an infinite God, and so when when we are in that position, we naturally we can't we can't know in full. Uh, we can only know in part all uh, these pieces of of our, our faith, but particularly of, of the Lord and um, and His infinite being. 
And so when it comes to the cloud of unknowing, there's this acknowledgement that we can see and we see glimpses, um, but we but we can't know fully. Yep. All right. Next one. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> As, there we go. I nailed it. We can end this now. You nailed it. Um, I'll, I'm only laughing because you uh, you said, well, let's talk about humility. And so, you know, those two jokes. Well, number one is I wrote one a book on. I wrote a book on this. It was called Ten Great uh, Humility and How I Attained It. And, uh, <laughs> never really sold well. And then my second book was uh, Ten Famous People Who Have Known Me. And uh, that too didn't that didn't sell particularly well. So some some listeners you know we say he's speaking on what <laughs> they're discussing humility. Uh, yes, the cloud of unknowing that comes um, especially it comes uh, out of a lot of the mystics, particularly in uh, the Middle Ages, sort of view ch uh, church history in this way that um, the first five hundred years you have this uh, the the, the blossoming of the church, like a three-leaf clover, uh, Africa, the Asian church goes east, African goes south, European goes north and west, and you have this, this uh, three-leaf clover. Then view the next 500 years as uh, that clover is pretty much crushed by the rise of Islam, and uh, African and Asian Christianity, most of its history is lost. There's a good book on this called the lost history of Christianity. And then uh, you have uh, European hangs by a thread. And uh, much of the great literature is actually safely tucked away in Ireland. And the uh, Irish come back and sort of repopulate Europe with the great literature and the gospel and so on and so forth. But they also bring back with it uh, the great Greek writers, Aristotle, Plato, and they introduce uh, Greek rationalism to the West. Now bear that in mind because the next 500 years really are the full blossoming in many would say of the church. Lewis, C.S. Lewis certainly felt that way. And in that you have uh, really the rise of mystics that we saw in the first 500 years are people experiencing supernatural things. Um, women lactating who uh, to who had never given birth. They were simply lactated because of uh, mothers who had passed away to save the life of children. Um, other saints uh, who uh, risen from the dead, so on and so forth. All of this doesn't really fit a rational approach to the faith. It's because May the Great Mystics wrote during that time that uh, the closer we come to God, the more we enter the cloud of unknowing. And what that has to do with Pat is what Paul alludes to, for example, when he even deflects in his writing to the Corinthians to the third person and says, if he could have said this parenthetically, I'm about to tell you something I experienced that is so mind-blowing, you'll never believe it. I once knew a man, in fact, I know a man who once went up into the third heaven and he peered into paradise and he heard things which he was not permitted to tell. They're, they're inexplicable. They are things you can't even give words to. 
That was Paul. Now, Paul, in that same letter to a very messed up church in Corinth, would say, in this life, we only know in part. There is much that we don't know, unknowing. And so the thinking about the cloud of unknowing is that we are finite. God is infinite. I know he said this before on podcasts, but it bears repeating. The degree of difference between the finite and the infinite is almost infinite. <laughs> <laughs> it is infinite. In fact, it really is contingent upon whatever the infinite deigns to reveal about himself. It is not what the finite can, quote, figure out about mm. the infinite radical difference. Mm -hmm. So when you ask about foundational, actually the word that was used quite often is what is radical about the faith. Now I know radical because I was born in 54 often means, you know, uh, dope smoking, long hair, beard, uh, bomb throwing. Yeah, man, change the world radical dude. But uh, the word actually, it can mean that colloquially, but originally it meant from the root. And so Hebrew language is a, called a tri-radical language because every word is based upon uh, whatever arrangement of three consonants. Now, there's many consonants in the language, but each word has three, and then the vowels are just sort of inserted in and around. So at the root, every word in Hebrew is based on three, an arrangement of three um, consonants called tri-radical. So a radical faith is one that goes back to the roots of the faith. And at the root of the faith is an infinite God who deigns to reveal himself to finite people. Hence, Paul said, even Jesus in the flesh recognized that equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. You don't grab onto, you don't, oh, I got this. Oh, oh, I figured that part out. Right. And so now the reason I'm saying this is that uh, for many, like in the Inklings, the high watermark for Christianity was this 500-year period going into Renaissance and the Middle Ages and so on and so forth, depicted in the art and the architecture and so on and so forth. Because then when you have the rise of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment, the next 500 years, bringing us to where we are today, what Charles Taylor talks about, is a quest for certainty. Mm. And that's, you know, obviously that, that conflicts with what we believe to be true here, which is we serve an infant God. We can never fully understand him with certainty. Um, so what... Yeah. What are, what are the, do we start going into the pieces that we can be certain about or, um, yeah. Where do you, where do you want to go next? Gosh, I can hear you kind of stumbling around there in, in your mind, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> You're tripping over all sorts of neural pathways. Um, <laughs> uh, mostly because those neural pathways shouldn't be there. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you say what the things we can be certain of, 
that's what's meant by the cloud of unknowing. You can't be certain of any. You can be confident. confident. Uh, see, see, I listen. There you go. You see? <laughs> well, that's so, okay, folks. So, go ahead. I was going to say so. That's that's good. I, I I really like. I mean, this is this is like the classic Metzger moment for me, where you realize the language you've been using is is incorrect. It's it's identifying the wrong frame. And the frame, even though we've talked about confidence before, the frame I was looking at was, was yeah, in the cloud of unknowing, what is, what is certainty and what is not, which is incorrect by like just that alone. And so the, the, the proper way to look about this is, uh, is through the lens of confidence, what we can be confident about. Is that, is that where you're going? That's right. We, uh, yeah. when, back, way back in the, um, you know, uh, hundred years ago when I was a pastor, uh, one of the things we started was just a study on uh, what do, what does uh, scripture and church tradition teach about uh, the role of women in the church. And the only thing we really ask is people come in confident. Now, those who are certain of their view, because we we had we read mm. tried to read the best of both sides. We can guess what happened with those who came in certain of what they held. <laughs> Probably weren't very happy. Yeah, and so it's like when uh, I coached. Mark's basketball team, and I would drop a play. I was confident that play would work. <laughs> I sure wasn't certain it was going to work. And by, by gum, it didn't most times. <laughs> um, so confidence has built-in humility because it recognizes we can know things truly. We truly know Jesus is Lord. But the way I imagine all that that means it might it might be off. Right. And that's the why I'm drawn to these middle-aged thinkers who like Lewis recognize reason is the foundation for truth, but imagination for meaning. So does God exist? Is that truth? Yes. Am I confident that the way I imagine God is exactly as he is. Of course not. Uh, of course not. No. I'm confident in the sense of I am ready to understand that in this mortal life, more, I'm sure, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm just as confident there are things that uh, I'll get to heaven and go, oh, jeez. And the Lord will go, don't worry, don't sweat it. You'd have to have been infinite. And so the the, the best way that actually, uh, let me ask you a question. What is the visceral feeling when you hear, when you when you first hear about God, you enter the cloud of unknowing? Is that a scary thing or a good thing? The first thing, um, I mean, probably, probably a little scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good because uh, he's not one to be trifled with. Yeah, I say that's a big hit when you think about today's approach is a therapeutic God. Uh, he loves you no matter what, and he's all for you, and it's all about grace. So you can just saunter in any old way. You can slap that host down your throat with no problem. 
You can sort of wander in church. You can actually do your scheduling on your iPhone while you're listening, not <laughs> listening to the sermon. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> but also, I find it to be powerfully attractive because it means in this mortal life, I'll never come to the end of it where I go, got it. Mm-hmm. Now I know God. Yep. This is why I've been, been writing a bit about further up, further in, because as you know, the last battle, the last book in the Narnia series, you're forever ascending. You're forever going further up, further in, further out, forever, because God is forever. And, and God is eternal life, and that internal life saturates this mortal life. Hence, John would write, the gospel writer, he would steal lines from Genesis where knowing is depicted as Adam knowing Eve, nuptial union. And he would say, this is eternal life, knowing Jesus. <laughs> Kathy and I have been married 40 years. We've not come to the end of our wonder. Now, a lot of people, a lot of evangelicals are afraid to go this far. So they'll go, oh yeah, spiritually and I go, yep. And um, uh, intellectually, yep. And <laughs> yeah, there are people, well, I want you to listen to Augustine for a moment. I think, you know, Pat, he, he's saying what you're saying, and I think you'll appreciate it. Here's Augustine. Whoever thinks then it, that in this mortal life, a man may so disperse the mists of bodily and carnal imaginings as to possess the unclouded light of changeless truth and to cleave to it with unswerving constancy of spirit, wholly estranged from the common ways of life. He neither, he understands neither what he seeks nor who he is that seeks it. You may have to read that one more time. <laughs> That's a lot to choose. A, it's, you try reading it alone. <laughs> Here we go. Whoever thinks that in this mortal life, a man may so disperse the mists of bodily and cardinal imaginings, who might dismiss, disperse, for example, the cloud of unknowing, just <sighs> as to possess the unclouded light of changeless truth and to cleave to it with unswerving constancy of spirit, wholly estranged from the common ways of life, that is completely uninfluenced by any cultural mores and winds and what have you, that person understands neither what he seeks nor who he is that seeks it. Did you catch that last phrase? He understands neither what he seeks. Why would Augustine say that? I don't know. I'm a bit lost here. He doesn't understand. He's seeking the cloud of unknowing. 
nor does he understand who he is that seeks it. What doesn't he understand about himself? What he, or, uh, yeah, I don't know. He's finite. Whoever thinks, Augustine writes, then in this mortal life, a man may so disperse the mists, that is, all these clouds of bodily and carnal imaginings. Who is God? What is the gospel? What is the cross? So as to possess the unclouded light of changeless truth. Now I see clearly, now I see everything. And cleave to it with unswerving constancy of spirit. Oh, not only do I know it, I hold it. I possess it. I don't change. Wholly estranged from the common ways of life, I'm viewing this completely untouched by any cultural influences. He understands neither what he seeks, the cloud of unknowing, nor who he is, a finite being who seeks mm, it. Got it. Okay. I, it was the warning at the end. It only took you three times of reading it for oh, me to get yeah, it. But. What, that's good. It took me 13. <laughs> it's like Apostle Paul with some of these run-on sentences. Come on, give us uh, give us 21st century folks a break here. Cut to the chase here, Paul. Yeah, and obviously this <laughs> wasn't written for simpletons. <laughs> so he's it's, it's a, almost a warning. You've forgotten that you're finite. You think you've attained. You've, forgot, you've, forgotten, right. what, you've forgotten who God is. Yeah. You've forgotten what cultures are. It's it's like you're you're no longer living in even in a reality. You know, if you think you've you've gotten here and you're separate from culture and you're all that. You sound like Alexander Campbell, who was the founder of what became the largest Protestant evangelical denomination in the United States in the middle of the nineteenth century, by the nineteenth middle of the nineteenth century, who said essentially this if I had the spirit and a mind stand over scripture. I need no man Mm. nor any tradition to teach me what that scripture says. I can be absolutely certain what it says. Yeah. Founder of the disciples of Christ. Well, (laughs) isn't that nice? Church lady would say. Now you... There's a fear that you said you felt when you first read Taylor and what he has to say toward the end. Recap that again because there might be something there for yeah, for us. Yeah, so I mean, we're, we're kind of getting here, which is this, uh, you, you know, we, we, can't, we can't disperse this mist. We, as, as Augustine said, you, uh, we can't know everything fully. And so we have to, we have to hold things loosely um where does that go too far uh, at what point do we that's that's maybe the fear is wh- what are we holding too loosely yes so i am going to piggyback on again lewis and even our friend christopher west you can't go too far in fact the problem is in what we've been talking about people don't go far enough Now, by that, I'm picking up on uh, 
Lewis's point in his book, The Discarded Image, a book that hardly any Christian I know has read. When I say read, I don't mean ripped through it so you can put it on the shelf and say, read that book. I mean, uh, eaten that book, chewed on it, masticated, burped it up, chewed on it again, swallowed it again. In his chapter on the heavens, Lewis makes a remark that probably loses most modern readers. Because first of all, he talks about this enchanted view of, of these three heavens. And, and he's saying, listen, the Middle Ages, the model was not to give you, this is the way the universe is laid out. It's the model of what we feel. And what we feel is what's depicted throughout Jewish tradition and the church tradition. There are these three heavens. The first heaven is your body. The second, you know, the boat of angels, what have you, a third heaven. And that's why Paul said he went to a third heaven and peered into paradise. The point being that the, the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, beginning, that's a temporal term. So you have the creation of time, which doesn't exist in eternity. Eternity is one big now. But Pat, we're only drawing this out because you, you figure that out? No. No. Can you be properly confident that what the scripture is depicting there is true? Sure. Sure. And Augustine later wrote, widening our faith is, is, has to do with that which you, God deigns to uncover or you discover, you love. And as you love it, you love it tenderly, not balled up fist, this is what the Bible says and I'm gonna hold to it. Because then more uncovered truth becomes available to you. Here's another way to put it. I'm really glad that I was a preacher before the internet existed. Why is that? Because there's quite a few sermons I go back and say, eh, I didn't, <laughs> that was mm. not. I was getting somewhere, but I preached that thing like I had arrived. Hmm. And uh, I had only written the first chapter of a, a book that would be written forever, but it wasn't the final chapter. Hmm. So because of that, because I was able to destroy every cassette tape I could find in my sermons, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. I tell you what, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. <laughs> and God knew that too. He said, we got to get Metzger these knuckleheads in before the internet. <laughs> and uh, so it's, um, so where were we? Well, we don't go far enough. And, and so back to Lewis. He makes this little cryptic remark. He goes, because he's talking about this, this, um, this experience of the third of, the, of these heavens that they're, as Charles Taylor rightly points out, we are porous beings. They are passing through and in and through. And in them, we have our being and our what have you. 
that's difficult for people who believe in certainty. Because, uh, so where exactly are they? Yes. Yeah. Right. And are people that go, um, spirit good, body bad? That doesn't work very well. Or people that say, how do we protect ourselves from this stuff? <laughs> the way you protect yourself is you walk humbly with your God in the ancient paths. But you don't like, we're cutting our kids from off from all this stuff. We're going to save them. Good luck, sonny boy. <laughs> and so we don't go far, we don't go further up and far enough up. And here's, here's, so here's Lewis's remark. It's in the chapter on the heavens. That's just a stunner the first time I, he goes, we are not to be like Meredith's Lucifer. who only peered in and saw the armies of unalterable law. Question. Who in heaven's name is Meredith Lucifer? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good news, listeners. First of all, on uh, the Monday after Christmas, we're going to talk about this on my column. Yes, a shameless plug for the Clapham commentary. Um, <laughs> He's referring to George Meredith, lovely believer who wrote a stunning poem in the late 1800s, Lucifer in Starlight. So if you go click on the Poetry Foundation, go to their website, you can find a little biography of Meredith. And you can find this short, very short poem, Lucifer in Starlight. And then Lewis refers to it and says, we're not to be like Lucifer. Meredith's Lucifer. So uh, Lucifer and Starlight uh, obviously is fiction. It is it is Meredith imagining that one day Lucifer, who is just tired, he 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 knows he's been defeated. And it's like I'm gonna give it one more shot, and he ascends. That's fascinating, by the way. That's an active verb, whereas Paul talks about hmm. he was taken, taken up. up. Yeah. So Lucifer gets to the third heaven, peers into eternity, peers back in to the center of it all, and only sees the armies of an alterable law. And he sighs and he knows it is over. Now, why does he only see the armies of an alterable law? I'd love to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's good because whatever you love. Okay, so I'm gonna <laughs> and we're gonna tease this out in my column, next two columns. But I'm gonna pour, I'm gonna lay it out right now because it has everything to do with the cross and are the crosses that we see today versus the first crosses in the church. See, he peers all the way into the center of the universe, Lucifer. I was an angelic being. Angels are not made in the image of God, who is love. They're not lovers. They're sentinels. They're warriors. They're, they're the army. And uh, they're the enforcers. And with that great rebellion, a third fell. But they're sentinels. For them, it is 
before they, before they, a third of them fell, is you used to obey God. And what's freaking nuts to them is people who don't. That's why scripture says, angels long to peer into the mystery of salvation. They don't get it. What don't they get? In one word. Love. Love. That's right. Because he goes on to say, Lewis, we are not to be like Meredith's Lucifer, who peering in only see the armies of unalterable law, but rather we are to see the insatiable the revel, revelry of insatiable love. Now let me say as clearly as possible, because this will probably offend, not meant to, some of my evangelical friends. For four centuries, there were no crucifixes or crosses in the church. First ones that show up, like Aiden's cross, you can Google that. They have a sphere, a circle in the center. And so the cross depicted two things. Payment for sin, but at the center, love. The triune God seeking to expand the circle of love by betrothing us. Jesus wed us, betrothed us at the cross, both ends. Now that's a mystery, but it can be seen in Scripture if you have eyes to see, ears to hear. And so Lewis is saying, when we look at the very center of this whole universe, and depicted by the center of the cross, we should see a sphere. God is a sphere. We should see the revelry of insatiable love. What does that mean, Pat? Well, I, I, I think maybe what, uh, what it doesn't mean is the cross is, is purely atonement, the trade-off, the paying of my debt. It's not, That's there's, right. more, there's more to it, more missing That's pieces right. of it. That's exactly right. Now here... Maybe we'll tease this out a little more in the next podcast if we run out of time, but the revelry, the out-and-out joy of insatiable love. So, I want to say this delicately, but I want to say it because it's, it is the gospel's best told in our body. Kathy and I, our love is insatiable, and that includes our sexual love. Lewis's point was everything, a meal, a glass of wine, good work. These are all, we're meant to, for us to experience the revelry of insatiable love where the wonder never wanes the discovery is never over oh yeah 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 okay honey you want to have sex again yeah well i have sex what the heck 
it's the reverie of insatiable love. I, I don't know any other way to say it except somewhere along the way, and this is profoundly true in America, the cross was stripped of the center. So we, believe it or not, many of us Christians are like Meredith Lucifer. We look into the center of it all and we only see a cross. And so for us, the gospel is a jailbreak, law, forensics, which is the science of what is admissible in a court of law to determine guilt or innocence, forensics. Mm. And so week after week, when you go and you see this cross, you're reminded that you're forgiven. And I got news for you. What Bono's saying, I believe you carry the cross of shame, but I still haven't found them looking for. And I think what he and others are looking for, they don't know, is Jesus carried the cross, he scorned having to carry the cross of shame for the joy set before him the joy of wedding his bride at the cross. We try to motivate people by every week saying, you ought to be ashamed. Look at all he did for you. Live for him. That'd be like the warden if he got out of Shawshank and a uh, great movie. <laughs> and uh, bad warden, let me start over. Let me give you a better warden. <laughs> But the warden calling you, Pat, and saying, by the way, what have you done for Shawshank recently with that, now that we released you, now that your debt was paid in full? You go, well, isn't that the point? That I'm free? Yeah, but that'll live for us. <laughs> but what? The fact that we, we had your debt paid for. I know you had my debts paid. I thought that's the point why I go free. <laughs> In other words, we know what we're saved from when we look at most crosses today. We don't know what we're saved for. Mm, that's good. Wow. Now, that's not going to wash with most of my friends for one reason. They're certain that their rendition of the cross is right. It would take a certain humility to go, you know, I've often, I've long been confident that this is a historic cross, but I am open to maybe, I believe in the cross, yes, but maybe my rendition of the cross isn't radical, isn't historic, isn't, maybe it's an aberration. Otherwise, Pat, what we end up with is when you come out of the kingdom of darkness, I've heard this before, into the kingdom of light, now you see everything. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of light. I don't mm. say, in fact, if you look at how little we confess, we give the impression anyway, or at least the Christians I know, I must know the most spectacular Christians in the history of the world, <laughs> is, uh, is the uh, uh, appalling lack of any confession. Is if we really don't really do that much bad once we come to Christ. That too changes with humility and entering the cloud of knowing because part of the cloud of unknowing 
is I am probably hundreds of thousands of times more sinful than I imagined. But God in his love says, we're going to parcel out to you what you could handle. If you confess, we'll go deeper into it. Hence, you read in Paul's writings over the years, he goes south in his appraisal of himself. He ends up being chief of all sinners. He doesn't go around licking his wounds saying, poor me. It's more, I'll tell you what, I peer into paradise. Holy smokes. But he doesn't say, so I go around beating myself up because I'm chief of all sinners, because he's the same man who writes to the Corinthians, I betrothed you, I wed you to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin. The cross is both and law, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law by paying our debt in his blood, and betrothal, Jesus wedding us. The last 500 years, i.e. by the title of Lewis's book, The Discarded Image, we've discarded, he would say, the sphere which was depicted in the center of the cross as the center of what happened on the cross and the center of the gospel, the revelry of insatiable love. Thank you.